This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington, and I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education, host of the podcast Transformative Principal, and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. We, um, Jethro, I guess that's you. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts in the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, a little bit of hacking. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Jethro and I would like to extend our thanks to our initial mission partner, Buoyancy Digital. Buoyancy Digital is, in fact, proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in the digital media space since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, contact Scott Rabinowitz at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R. Media on LinkedIn. Hey there, Jethro. Hello. I'm excited to see you today, Fred. It's going to be a great conversation today. We're off to a fun week. We're starting with uh, Dr. Eric Cole, and then we've got Mark Zaid on Thursday. So take us in. (laughs) It's going to be great. So let's talk about Dr. Eric Cole. He's a former hacker who now runs a security firm. He's the founder of Secure Anchor, which is a cybersecurity firm that works with companies to make the internet a safer place to do business. He's written several books on cybersecurity, and he's frequently called upon as the go-to expert by CNN, Fox, CBS, NBC, and 
we need to get him on ABC. I think that's what our goal is now. So we should probably do that. He also worked with President Obama in his cybersecurity office, and he was one of the authors of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission Cybersecurity Guide and received a Cyber Wingman Award from the Air Force for building out and developing their entire cybersecurity program. So really excited to have you here, uh, Dr. Cole. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to having some fun with you, uh, with Frederick and Jethro. <laughs> yeah, well, we're excited. And I think what I'd like to do first is is talk about you were a hacker before and hacked into the CIA, if I remember correctly, and then you decided to make better choices. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you went down that path and what, I guess, scared you straight, if you will? Maybe it didn't scare you straight. You just made a better choice, but you can you can fill in the blanks there. A little clarification. I think you want to get me arrested today, Jethro. So, uh, so, so, uh, <laughs> I, I am a ethical hacker, and I actually worked for the CIA as an ethical hacker. So, oh, so yes, correction. I, Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I, 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 I'm one of those where uh, I I hacked everything. So, at the CIA, I was tasked with a simple mission of how do we prove systems are secure. And there's no way to prove it other than breaking in. So at the CIA as an employee, I was employed eight years, eight of my 10 years there as a professional hacker, where not only did I break into their systems, but I also broke into various systems around the world. And one of the things I learned after being a professional hacker for eight years is it's boring because you always get in. If the only way you could have 100% security is if a system is useless. The, the law of security, let's just get it out there, just like the law of gravity. If I, if I take a pen and I drop it, gravity will always kick in. And the law of cybersecurity is simple. When you add functionality to anything, you decrease security. When you add functionality to anything, you increase the security risk. So any functional system or functional device has flaws and vulnerabilities. And with the right creativity, you can always break in, always compromise and always exploit them. Um, Dr. Cole, I, it seems to me like this is actually a point that's directly relevant to every homeowner who's listening to this podcast, because the minute you add in a smart speaker or a smart doorbell or any of these Internet of Things connected devices, you're creating potential security issues for yourself. Right. And let's just get it out there. To, to me, the biggest marketing scam on planet Earth is calling these devices smart. How in the world <laughs> is having a device that's listening in on everything you're doing, watching your video, capturing everything, and has vulnerabilities that can be exploited from the outside, how in the world is that a smart device, right? So I, I always crack up with that, that term. But no, the, the biggest thing that I, I always get across to anybody, who, no matter who it is, whether you're a parent, a teacher, whether you have a dollar in the bank, no matter how much you're making, you are a target and you are going to be compromised. I, I see this all the time where somebody is getting ready to buy their first house. They saved up $40,000 for seven years. It's their life savings to buy their first house. And 36 hours before closing, they get an email from the closing agency that says, listen, this happens quite frequently, but the seller of the house changed their bank. This is where you need to wire the money to. Please update this information at your bank. They send back an email to confirm. They get a validation saying, yes, this is legitimate. 
They never bother to pick up the phone because they don't think they're a target. They go in and transfer the new account. They show up to closing and they go, where's the money? And once again, because you transferred the money and it's more than 24 hours, you, not the bank, is liable. Now, can you sue the closing company for potentially not having proper security? Yes, but that's going to cost you ninety dollars to $100,000, which you don't have. And, and I unfortunately see this happen all the time. And it breaks my heart and gets me angry because if more people just were a little more cautious and knew they were a target and just did something as simple as pick up a telephone to verify or drive to the closing agency or bring a paper check instead of wiring it, these things could easily be avoided. But people just trust the system. They trust email and they don't believe they're a target. Yeah, that is that is frightening to me as a normal human being, just so you know. Um, so I, I want to talk about some of the strategies people can do to be safe in the future um, later in this conversation. But first, I want to talk about this idea that everybody is a target. What does that actually mean? And does that mean that people are waiting for us to save up money and buy a house? Or does that mean that it is a crime of opportunity that people are hacking into the title company and they're finding who's getting ready to buy a house and that's what they're doing. What does that mean that we, everybody is a target, Eric? Essentially with everything being online, there are no secrets. Everything you're doing is public information. So when you buy a house, that's public record. When you go in and get a loan, that's public record. So all this information is out there. So these attackers understand and have these scams down and it's automated. So, so they have an automated process that says, okay, we have a script that checks the Virginia database, the New York database, every single state and says, when somebody is buying a house, what is the closing date? 36 hours before it, send out this email and it's automated and it's opportunity and they're playing the odds. They know that not everyone's going to fall for it. But if I send that out to a hundred thousand people a week and even 1% fall for it and you're getting between 20 to a hundred thousand dollars times a thousand, that's a pretty good take. And, and, and that's what they're playing. And th this is what people forget. Everyone thinks it's going to be the large companies that they're going to go after. So let's just look at a large company, say Lockheed Martin or Microsoft. They have over 300 people on their security team, and they're spending 50 to $60 million a year on security. Do they have flaws? Yes. But how easy or hard is it going to be to break in? Pretty difficult. I mean, there's people watching, monitoring, tracking. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. But Jethro, or Frederick for that matter, I'm betting that neither one of you for your family has a team of 300 security professionals full-time and I probably, well, let's even take a zero if you're probably not spending $5 million on security. So, so th this is the problem that going after individuals, it's a smaller amount, but it's so easy that the multipliers play in their favor. So even though the media only covers when solar winds or these major breaches happen, that's what the media covers. But every minute of every day, individuals are losing their life savings and nobody knows about it. And because no one knows about it, people don't realize just how big a target and threat it's out there. Well, Eric, I think that you raised two 
features or aspects that I'd love to have you go into in a little bit more net, more depth. Number one is the social engineering that's involved in getting people to do the behavior that the hackers want them to do. So that's number one. I think that's a great topic. And then the second thing, which I think really terrifies me, particularly having older parents and so forth, is the automation piece. The fact that you know you can be a 13-year-old kid somewhere in Eastern Europe, and you can download scripts that let you do all of this. So if you wouldn't mind, dig into those a little bit. Sure. So, so I'll start with the latter one is, and, and you nailed it, the biggest demographic that is targeted by cyber attacks are people over 65 that are retired. Because let's face it, they didn't grow up with computers. My mom, who's 77, still calls it a moose. I'm like, mom, it's a mouse, not a moose, but she still calls it a moose, right? She, she does not know how to use that stuff. And they're always looking to maximize their investments and they trust people. So if they're getting an email that says, hey, we can increase this or do that, they believe that it's true and honest and they're more likely than not going to go in and click on those links. So if any one of us listening to this means you have more knowledge. If you have parents or grandparents that are over 65, and you have not talked to them about this issue, you're doing a disservice because you're going to get that call if you don't talk to them about they lost their life savings and you are going to get sick to your stomach that you didn't have that conversation with them. Now, I know it's a lot of bad news, so let's get to a little good news. The good news is this. In almost every application, whether it's e-commerce, online banking, credit cards, or anything like that, there is security built in, but it's not turned on by default. So you have to go in and turn it on. So if we're talking in general security for any bank, any e-commerce, any of those, the two things you got to do is one, two-factor authentication known as multi-factor because these passwords are being stolen. Passwords have come and gone. If you want to go in and still use passwords, you should only do that if you ride a dinosaur to work. If you don't have a dinosaur, don't use, I mean, they're just so old school. I mean, bell bottoms, the BGs, the whole nine yards. So you give up on passwords, go for multi-factor. It's much, much better. Second is one of my favorite features is account notification. Every banking app and every e-commerce site has the ability for you to get notification when somebody's trying to log in or transfer money. Now, I always have people go, but Eric, if I get that every time I do a transaction or every time I use a credit card, that's going to get a little annoying because I have to go in two or three times a day and I have to hit yes. Okay, two options. Option one is whenever you go to your bank and whenever you purchase with your credit cards, you have to spend five seconds going to your phone and approving it. That's option one, five second inconvenience. Option two, don't have the inconvenience, ignore it. And in 10 or 12 months, there's no guarantees, but this is a guarantee. You're going to lose between five dollars to $10,000, and you're going to have to spend three to 400 hours fixing it. Which option do you want? Those are your only two options. So that's what we really get to. And then on the phishing, what one of my approaches to cybersecurity is don't tell people no. Because if you tell people no, don't click on a link, don't click on a link, what are they going to do? click on the link. So I give you solutions to empower what I do, what I do with my mom, with everyone on my team does, is we have our Windows computers that we do our work. That's only for work. We never check email or surf the web. 
because those are the two most dangerous applications on the planet. And because 90% of the population uses Windows, that's what all the phishing attacks are for. So when I'm checking email or surfing the web, I use an iPad. Now, even if it was malicious, it probably wouldn't work because it's a non-Windows computer. And even if it was targeted for iPads, which is very, very rare, there's no critical data on my iPad. So if it gets compromised, I just rebuild it. So my solution is use two devices, just separate it out, build a habit and take away the risk. That's a really fascinating um, suggestion. I, so I want to go back a second to turning on that notification with your bank. I don't even know how to do that. So can you give us the, the phrases we need to use to talk to our bank to get that to happen? Yeah, it's easy. Just get within five feet of your computer and just clap. It's the clapper enabled. So if you just clap. clap. Not- okay. Good. No, it, I can do that. <laughs> yeah. No, if, if you go in, it's a little different in all the cases, but here's how you find it. In your bank or e-commerce or credit cards, go under settings and there's either going to be a security setting or under many of them, it's under advanced. So you have to click advanced and then security. And then you'll see several options. One of them says either multi-factor or two-factor authentication. And then the other one says account notification. And then what you do when you turn that on is they're going to verify your phone number by texting you a unique code. You enter the code once and then it's enabled and you're good to go for the rest of it. But, but I, I can tell you that simple advice of account notification has not only saved me personally, but I know hundreds of people that if they didn't have that notification, they would have been scammed. And because they had it, they were able to catch it, remediate it in a timely manner. This is reminiscent of the um, calls you would get if you're doing a charge, for instance, while you're traveling, you know, and the bank sees something. So they've got these algorithms that are checking to see whether or not the spending is consistent with your practices. Yeah, exactly. The the clipping limits. Yep. Yeah. My bank actually, anytime I purchase something through an, an overseas vendor, they call me every single time and Eric, I appreciate what you said in the beginning that people don't pick up the phone and call. I I did actually do that the first time that it happened because I had started with a new bank and I wasn't used to that happening with my previous bank. So when I would make this purchase, they would call me and it would come from an 800 number that I didn't know what it was. And so um, thankfully in the message, they say, you can verify this by calling your bank. So that's what I did is I called the bank and I said, hey, I got this phone call. And they said, well, what was the number? And I told them the number and they said, okay, yes, that is us. And so, you know, it, the other thing that I appreciated was that it didn't ask me to enter any information. It gave me options. And it said, is your, is the last four numbers of your account, one of these four options. And then I could choose. And that, um, that was a, a annoyingly long way to do it but also refreshingly secure way to do it so that I wasn't typing in my social security number into the phone dial tone. I was just answering their multiple choice questions, which definitely made me feel like it was more secure in that if I wasn't, the worst thing that would happen is they would reverse the charge if I did something wrong. <laughs> and that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, but, if, but I wasn't giving up any personal information. So I want to talk a little bit more about the multiple devices that you mentioned, um, because that we know that there are exploits that can happen in uh, iPads and iPhones and, and different tablets. So they aren't perfectly safe, but they're certainly 
more safe, uh, according to a lot of people. Um, is that your position as well? And what is the benefit of using two different devices? And it, is that going overkill for a normal person? Excellent. So if we want to get down to the technical facts, Windows, Mac, and Linux all have the same amount of vulnerabilities and exposures. So this idea that Mac is more secure than Windows or, or Linux is more secure than Mac or any of those things is not true. We track the number of vulnerabilities per year. We've been doing it for 11 years and the number of vulnerabilities are exactly the same. So all operating systems are difficult, all have vulnerabilities and are all the same amount of exposure from a technical standpoint. However, we need to put another layer on there. That's install base. If 90 plus percent of the world is using Windows, and we talked about crimes of opportunity, which most phishing attacks are, am I going to target 90%, 6%, or 3%? I'm going to target that 90%. So that's the reason why Windows is targeted more. It's not that it's more vulnerable. It's that there's a larger install base that's out there. Now, yes, as more and more people utilize Macs or, or other devices, those attacks will increase. But right now, these attackers are concerned about highest return on their investment, and it's Windows. So we see few and far between Mac and Linux base, but very, very rare. And then you said, is it too hard for somebody to use two devices? You already do that. Everybody has a phone and a laptop or two or three. So, I mean, this is not something that's a big inconvenience. And even if we look at low-end tablets at, say, $300, what is your security worth? I'll tell you right now, if you go in and you're using a Windows device to check email and surf the web, and that also contains all your passwords, your banking, and your tax records, 95% chance within 12 months, you're going to get your information compromised. And on average, it's going to cost you $5,000 and 200 hours. So your question is pretty simple. Do you spend $300 now and use two devices? Or in 12 months, you spend $5,000 and 200. Those are your only two options. And once people recognize that, all of a sudden things become very easy with cybersecurity. The problem today is people assume that what they're doing is secure, and that's the most dangerous mindset on the planet. For the um, average consumer slash computer user, what's the value of, for instance, anti-malware or antivirus even anti-phishing programs. They are out there. Obviously, Windows Defender comes in to try to you know, put up the castle gates and all the rest of that. How effective are those? They are not perfect, but for $70 or $80, for most people, they are worth every penny because you're going to make mistakes you, and they're going to catch some things that are out there. The problem is this. Your advanced adversaries, they know that you're using that software. They know how it works and it operates. And in a lot of cases, they know how to bypass it. So if you're going in and you're spending that 70 or 80 bucks with the assumption that I can be dangerous and click on anything I want, then I'd rather you not have it and be cautious. But if you're going to still be cautious, but have it as a safety net, it's not a bad safety net. But the bottom line is this, I can take the safest car on the planet but if you drive at 100 miles an hour into a tree, you can still get into an accident and die. It's ultimately the responsibility of the driver. 
So I can give you a safe computer that's locked down, that has endpoint security. And if you go in and do crazy, stupid things, you can still get infected and still get compromised. So it's a balance of being careful. Don't trust email. Don't click on links. Don't open attachments. Remember, we're in tax season. The IRS does not communicate with taxpayers via email. Never, ever, ever. So if you ever get an email saying it's the IRS, grab small children and run. Do not walk to the nearest exit. Right? Don't click on it. So you need to have an awareness, but those endpoint security products are also a good safety net just in case. So I had something happen to me this last week that really frustrated me. So there's all these kinds of um, webcam things out there where they try to entice people to click on a link so that you can see some naked women. And I, I, what they did is they made a Google doc and then they commented on it and mentioned my Gmail address in the Google doc. And um, I was, I had, I accidentally clicked on it, which I should not have done because I was doing some Google doc work with somebody else and thought they had added someone to this thing. So I went to go see what it was because it wasn't like click here to see naked women. It was, what do you think about this suggestion or something innocuous like that? So I click through cause I'm already in there doing stuff. And sure enough, there's, there's these links. And now because I clicked on it, I deleted it. I reported it, but now I've gotten 10 new ones in the last week because they saw that I actually did it. And I'm so frustrated with myself because I, I know that I shouldn't have done it, but I was, I was already working in that area. And so it made sense. I was waiting for somebody to mention me in a comment so that I could, I could continue the work. And it was just so frustrating that that happened. And I'm a security conscious kind of person, and I don't think that everything I'm doing is secure, but still it, it caught me in that and it's very frustrating. So what kinds of things could I do to prevent that from happening when I'm already using the tools and they're using the tools that I'm using against me? I was going to say, first thing that needs to be done, and don't do it on this show because I like talking with you, but the next show, Frederick has to put you in timeout. So I think Jethro, Jethro needs to go in timeout for 10 minutes for, for being a bad boy and clicking on that, that link. But, but God, what, we what, talk when it about comes that all to the time, time, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, unfortunately, Jethro, what you're saying there is 99% of the cases I work in where they go, Eric, after I clicked on it, I was like, oh, you know what? I shouldn't have done it. It's sort of an after the fact thing. And unfortunately, you are then on the frequent customer list. And then at that point, setting up some spam filters or endpoint security can help a little bit. But in a lot of those cases, you just have to be really, really cautious. But I'll, I'll even go back to my example where you were using the same computer right, for working and checking email. And I know the idea of checking email on a separate device sounds like an inconvenience, but if you would have had that discipline, and, and when I'm working, I have my iPad and my computer right next to each other, and I literally go back and forth. So if I would have just, email is never open on my Windows computer. If I would have gone back to my iPad to just check that email, and I accidentally clicked, it would have showed me that, hey, this was bogus, but it wouldn't have worked because it's not Windows. You could have deleted it and cleaned it up a lot quicker. So a lot of that is really that separation of just building the discipline of just having those two separate devices and just really being careful of where you check email, where you surf the web, and try not to do any of that on a Windows box. 
Eric, uh, one of the one of the audiences that we like talking to are the IT departments of the various schools that uh, listen to this because of educator issues and so forth. And I think it would be helpful to them if you could detail some of the things that they could do to better harden and protect the school environment. You know, particularly since there's um, confidential information of both teachers and students, and obviously what they could do, I assume, has applicability to other businesses as well. Yes. Yeah. And, and we do a lot of work with uh, colleges, education, areas, others. So, so first thing, which I know is some paradigm shifts that are out there, but figure out the superset of all applications that teachers need, install it as that secure build, and take away administrator rights. I, I see so many teachers logging in as administrator 24-7. And when they go in, and if you click on a link as a normal user, the impact is small. If you click on the link as administrator, game over because they have full control of the system. So I know if they've had it, I worked with one college where a professor was there for 30 years and the professor called me on the phone to let me know uh, what he thought about me with some very interesting four-letter words and said, Eric, I've been here for 30 years. I earned the right to be an administrator. And I said, sir, you've been at the school for 30 years and you've earned the right to teach the students. Earning rights for administrative access is something if you needed to do your job and you don't. I said, tell me specifically what you need to do your job and I will do that. Don't tell me that you need administrative access. Tell me what are the specific actions and then it's my job to make sure that you can do it. So you have to fight through that. that that's the first one. The second which is probably to me one of my favorite, most powerful tools that hardly any schools use is application whitelisting. Essentially with application whitelisting, you have an approved set of applications. They are vetted and validated and cryptographically hashed. Anytime you run one of those applications, they verify the hashing of all libraries or modules and anything that's running before they run on the system. Just think about that. If you don't have administrator rights, and every time you go in and run a program, it gets cryptographically verified. What can the attacker do? They can't modify programs. They can't install programs. They can't change. I mean, you've basically created an environment that's functionally rich for the teacher and very, very difficult, if not impossible, for the adversary to break in. But once again, we have to break some of these paradigms where, well, I need to install this, this, and this. No, let's come up with configuration management, secure builds, and no administrative access, application whitelisting, and you're going to be in really good, solid shape. And then the last thing is just making sure you're updating and patching those systems. See, what I think is really particularly valuable about what you're talking about is that it assumes a comprehensive approach to cybersecurity from the ground up. And in my experience in talking with school districts, that's the piece that's missing. People tend to be very reactive or ad hoc in terms of how they approach cybersecurity. Exactly. And uh, sometimes people get a little offended, but the way I approach it, and I do this for myself, even as a cybersecurity expert for 30 years, and even though Jethro wants me to be convicted for hacking into the CIA. Uh, Sorry, I still apologize. No, it's good, man. I love it. <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm going to make a mistake. They're just like Jethro, who's very security minded, I'm going to get emails. I'm going to make mistakes. And I'll actually be honest with you guys. It just happened on Saturday night. 
Saturday night, I'm working with one of my clients in Saudi Arabia and they do Sunday through Thursday. So Sunday is the start of their day. I was tired. It was 10 p.m. I'm not an evening person. And I went to go to meeting to set up an appointment. And I forgot the second O. So instead of go to, I typed got meeting. Do you realize that URL is registered by a malicious group? And if you don't type it, I know people are going to try it, but if you type GOT meeting, leave out one O, that's a malicious site and will infect your system with malware. But because I did it on my iPad and it came up and there wasn't anything on it and it was met for Windows, it was three minutes where I put myself in timeout and I said, shame on you. And I was a little annoyed at myself, but I was able to recover very quickly. If I did that on my Windows system, it would have been a completely different outcome and that system would have been compromised. So you just have to recognize everybody is going to make a mistake. The attackers are that good. Create an environment where the impact of mistakes are minimized or neutralized. It's funny because it reminds me of the early days of my research. My first book was called Obscene Profits, which was about the rise of the online adult industry way back in 2000. And you may recall, since you've been in this space, that when the White House set up whitehouse.gov, some porn site grabbed onto whitehouse.com and it became a huge controversy. The White House basically tried to take legal action against them and they weren't able to do anything. But it's exactly that kind of, of misspelled or slightly off URL that gets a lot of people into trouble. And, 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 and I love that example because people today, when they think cyber attacks, they think these advanced adversaries with these super sophisticated attacks like Tom Cruise breaking into CIA head. I mean, but most of the attacks out there from these advanced adversaries are simple, basic, but very effective. They're going with the easy stuff. So don't fall for the easy stuff because the advanced stuff is too hard even for the adversaries to do. Yeah, that, that's really a good point. And I, I think one of the things that you've made very clear is that there are simple things you can do to, to protect yourself from these threats. And that I think is a key that it, you don't have to be a hacker yourself. You don't have to be a cybersecurity expert yourself to be able to protect yourself. And you, you wrote a book called Cyber Crisis, Protecting Your Business from Real Threats in the Virtual World. And that comes out in about a month from when this, uh, from today, when the podcast is first recorded. And I'm, I would encourage people to go check that out because that you you write in the book about a lot of these things, but then you're talking about really protecting yourself from the real threats that people are facing. Uh, anything else that you want to add about the book that people should know uh, before they go buy it? The, the, the big thing is it's written in English. And, and, and what I mean by that is this is my eighth book. And when I started writing books in 2000, I believe that the biggest problem was engineers didn't have enough technical knowledge in cybersecurity. So I wrote six different technical books, Hackers Beware, Network Security Bible, Advanced Persistent Threat, and just really digging down into the technical details. And what I realized about three years ago is the problem is not that technical people don't know what to do. It's they don't know how to communicate to executives and executives don't understand the problem. When I talk to, and when I say executives, I mean it broadly. Teachers, parents, doctors, executives. A, a, a parent is an executive of their house. A teacher is an executive of the classroom. So anybody that's in a position of authority that their 
lack of cybersecurity could impact a large population. That's the loose term I'm using. I realized there were no resources out there written in English. There was no book you could pick up that was fun to read, easy to read, and informative. And my career has been built on when I find a problem, I look for a solution. And if a solution doesn't exist, I create one. And that's what I did with Cyber Crisis. We needed a book that was fairly easy to read, that people can understand. And after I wrote it, I did something I didn't do with any of my other books. Before I sent it to the publisher, I sent it to 10 principals, 10 teachers, 10 doctors, 10 parents, 10 executives, 10 CEOs. 10. I had 100 people that I reached out to in 10 different categories. And I asked all of them to provide feedback. And every piece of feedback, even if it was one off, I addressed and updated in the book to make this as easy and fun to read with practical advice you could use, just like we're covering on this podcast. Oh, that's very cool. Um, let me ask you this, although Jethro, did you have a follow-up? Well, I just want to say, I think that that's really that key of being able to say, to translate it into plain English is, is so important. One of the best jobs that I had was when I was in the IT department supporting teachers at a district level. And then I went to the curriculum department and I saw I saw my role in that position to translate what the IT department was saying into the teacher's language and translate what the teachers were saying into the technical language. And I felt like that was me at my best is being able to do that because once people understood what the other one needed, then it was like, oh, yeah. So, for example, you talked to Eric about um, whitelisting applications. And I said, teachers need to be able to use apps to be successful. So, we need to find a way to make it so that they can actually get the apps they need and not have like a six week process of appealing to the IT department. So, there needs to be a way to say, this is a secure enough app for us to use, and we should go ahead and do it um, because. It, it's going to help our students. So I think that that piece about being able to translate it into plain English is incredibly important. And that's one of the things where I'm different than a lot of security professionals. A lot of security professionals, they'll go in and tell non-technical people what to do. And when they don't do it, they blame them. What I do is say, that means I didn't communicate effectively. I, I believe all problems in any area of your life are both created and fixed with proper communication. And to me, we weren't communicating in a simple enough manner. And the analogy I sort of used in this book is, uh, me and my wife have been married for 25 years, but, but five years ago, I learned a trick that revolutionized our marriage is I would look at her and say, honey, pretend I'm stupid. I mean, just you're saying things and you think I understand and I don't. Right. So I said, just pretend I'm stupid and just make it simple. If you want me to do something, tell me, but don't sit there and get mad at me saying, well, you should have known and read my mind. So so now that we have that rule is make it as simple as possible. And she does. Everything changes. And that was sort of the book here is if people are not listening to what we're saying as cybersecurity professionals, it means we're not doing a good enough job. So let's try again. That's why even though it took over a year to get the book out, I felt that vetting process was so critical because I could think I'm communicating, but only when asking those people, could I really know whether I accomplished that job? Well, that's an anecdote that opens up a really fertile field of <laughs> commentary. Um, but let me ask you this, Eric, because it seems to me that you know one of the challenges we face 
is that all of this is still relatively new, right? I mean, at the outside, the World Wide Web is, you know, 27, 28 years old. Even the internet is just 50 years old. We're really still incorporating this into our society. And I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on what we do to better educate our children going forward to deal with cybersecurity issues and really to be competent online people. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is something I have three children and it is so near and dear to my heart. And the analogy I always use is when our kids were three, four, and five years old, both at home and at school, we taught them about physical dangers. We told them, look both ways before crossing the street. Don't take candy from strangers. Don't get in a car with a stranger, even if they say they know your parent. One of the jokes we always had is my youngest daughter, uh, she, she has a, a, a bit of a personality, which I, I love. And I would pick her up from kindergarten and I'd get out of the car to give her a hug. And she'd start screaming, stranger danger, stranger danger. And like the principal, and I'd be like, honey, this isn't funny. If daddy gets arrested, this is not fun. And I kid you not, at five years old, she looks at me and goes, dad, if you got arrested, it's not fun for you, but it's fun for me. And I'm like, oh, girl, we'll wait till she starts dating, right? So uh, the, the point is we focus on that. And then what do we do? At seven, eight, nine, depending on how old your kids are, we give them all this tech. We say, here you go. And we never teach them anything about it. We never give them any warnings. We never give them anything else. And we are in a very dangerous spot. And this is something that has been happening and I predicted. But in 2020, it increased so much where kids, and to me, if you're under 21, you're still a kid because your brain is still growing. These kids, things they said or did when they were 13, 14, or 15 years old, and in some cases, they're just repeating lyrics of a song, they're applying to college, somebody out there is raising up this video from three, four, or five years ago, and they are losing scholarships, they are getting kicked out of school, they are getting their life ruined, and to me, once again, you could argue either side. The point is, as parents, we need to tell our kids, your life is being recorded. There is no delete button. And anything you say can and will be used against you for the rest of your life. And I don't think this is fair because I'll tell you, when I was 16, we could probably fill a book with the list of stupid things I did. And if the internet and cameras and phones existed, I would probably be in jail because there'd be so much evidence that could be used against me. But kids should be allowed to be stupid, but they can't. So as parents, here's what I've learned. If you tell them not to do it and they don't understand why, they'll still do it. So what I do is every week, sometimes twice a week, I will take real world cases that happen and I will send them to my kids and then when I talk to them, two of my kids are in college and my youngest is in 10th grade, uh, I'll sit down or call them on the phone and I'll tell them about what happened. And I'd be like, just so you know, this is what happened. And I'm just curious, what lesson did you take away from that? And what I do for that is I let them then figure out the solution. And what I find is 99% of the time, they then take action, they fix it and they adjust it when they realize the impact to them. 
But most parents are thinking that you can have these net nanny apps or limit or these kids can get around any of these safety checks. They can get around any of them. You just have to make them aware and really teach them to do good decisions. And then here's my final advice with that. If you're going to let your kids be in social media, you should follow them. You should follow them on TikTok, Insta, or uh, Snapchat. And it's funny because I was giving a presentation at a PTA meeting and a parent came up to me afterwards and goes, Eric, I have a 17-year-old girl. I do not want to follow her and see what she's doing. And I said, okay, so you're okay with all these creepy 40-year-old pedophiles that are posing as 17-year-olds following your daughter, and that's okay with you, but you're not okay with that. And I didn't mean to, but I made the mom break down crying because she recognized that nothing online is private. I don't care the security settings. I don't care the delete in 10 seconds. Nothing online is private and everyone can have it. So if you're following your children and you don't like what they're doing, you don't like what they're saying, then guess what? Every college, every employer, and every sicko out there is seeing that same information. So you can either be a parent and make them aware, or you can let them suffer the consequences in five, 10, or 15 years later. Well, that's really good advice, Eric. Actually, this whole cyber traps thing started about a decade ago when I wrote Cyber Traps for the Young, and it was directly inspired by my experience as the dad and stepdad of four boys who had grown up basically with the World Wide Web. And I was really trying to get a handle on what was changing with the distribution of powerful devices to kids. And let me add just one other thing, which I think you might find useful. About a month ago, I started a regular feature on Cybertraps.com called the Cybertraps Compendium. And it's a weekly listing of some of the headlines that you're talking about. Oh, so I'm going to start. I'm going to use that. Good. Cause, cause I have to search myself. I'm going to use that. Excellent. No, no, no. I'm doing it for you. Cause it's part of my research. And there is a section specifically cyber traps for the young, great conversation starters for parents about some of the things that are out there. For sure. Um, I, I really appreciate that advice there at the end. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been awesome talking to you. Once again, his book is called cyber crisis, protecting your business from real threats in the virtual world. Make sure that you check that out. And I really appreciate you being part of Cyber Traps today, Eric. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And I appreciate what both of you are doing because to me, raising the awareness with parents, teachers, and kids, I mean, you're doing God's work. So thank you on behalf of everyone for raising that level of accountability. Well, it's a real pleasure to speak with people like you, Eric. Thank you again. That wraps up this episode of the Cyber Traps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, ethical hacking, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you've enjoyed the show and we'll share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have a question or want to reach out to us for topic suggestions, please do so. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. 
If you're still listening, you must have loved this episode like I did. And if that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service of choice. Thanks so much for being here, and we look forward to having you join us on Thursday for our interview with Mark Zaid. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.